Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Zamini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. We have a great show lined up with our special guest, the professor, John Clayton. We'll be talking about the Jets and all things NFL. We have our Twitter mailbag where the uh, listeners uh, fire some questions at me. And we have our On the Beat segment uh, coming up a little later where I'll take you behind the scenes on the Jets beat. Some good news. We are going to be on Apple Podcasts. That includes this podcast. When I know a lot of you have been asking about that. And I've been saying, be patient. Well, it's finally happening. And we're also going to eventually make it onto Google Play. And, of course, you could always find us on ESPN.com and the ESPN app. This is my 31st year covering this team, and a lot of people ask me, how could you cover one team for this long? It's a fair question, and my answer is, you never really know what's going to happen next. I think covering the Jets is like reading a suspense novel that includes nonstop drama, some heartbreak, occasional hope, and yes, even a little comedy. You just can't get enough. It's a page-turner. And that brings us to the latest drama, the front office shakeup, which happened last week. This is the kind of stuff that makes the Jets such a fascinating cover for a journalist. So what the heck happened? Mike McCagnan fired his right-hand man, vice president of uh, player personnel, Brian Heimerdinger, fired last week, three weeks after the draft, a bombshell by any measure. So let's try to unpack some of this stuff because a lot of stuff happened. So what's indisputable is that Adam Gase and Mike McCagnan were not compatible. I don't think anyone can argue that. The question is why. That's the big question that people are still wondering. I've talked to a lot of people involved in this situation, and I'm, of course, not going to say who, but just sources and all different aspects of this controversial move. And I think you can break it down into three different perspectives. You have the Gase perspective. And I'm not saying this is what Adam has said or is saying. I'm saying this is, I think, from his perspective, from talking to people who see it from his point of view. I think he went into this job hopeful he would get along with Mike McCagnan and they'd make it work. They got into the nitty gritty, free agency and the draft. And Adam just became disenchanted. Uh, I think he would disagreed with Mike over some personnel decisions. I think the Le'Veon Bell, probably foremost among them. And Adam recognized some bad signs, and he thought to himself, this is my second head coaching shot, probably my last shot. These are bad signs. If I want to succeed here, this is not going to work. So I think that's from the, the Gase camp perspective. There's also the McCagnan camp perspective. And again, I'm not saying this came from Mike, but just people who are familiar with his thinking. Uh, I think they think Adam was power hungry and started to whine when he didn't get his way behind the scenes with free agency in the draft. I think they feel he was detached, kind of acting like a spoiled kid who didn't even want to be seen on draft weekend. He didn't go on TV. He didn't uh, do a press conference. He stayed behind the scenes. And uh, I think the McCagnan people think that he was just removed himself from the operation and that he was determined to get his own guy in there. Again, that's from that perspective. From the Jets' perspective, they see this as a process where Christopher Johnson, the CEO, did a quote-unquote deep dive into the football operation 
and came away thinking that the synergy between McCagnan and Gase is not all that great, not as good as he had hoped for, and that the area, the organization was lacking in certain areas and he had to make a change. That's from the Jets' perspective. They give you more of a clinical company line answer to it. Uh, here's my take. I, I think there's probably truth in all three different angles of it. I'm not saying one person is entirely responsible. I think all three, there's some kernels of truth there. Some takeaways. Number one, I think Christopher Johnson did a bad job by signing off on the Gase McCagnan tandem. People in the league would just tell you that different personalities, different backgrounds, that it wasn't going to be really, really hard. It was going to be hard to make it work, and it didn't work quite clearly. This marriage, I wrote this in a story, very Kardashian. It only lasted four months. Um, so that was my first takeaway. Uh, second, you know, I think if Christopher had second thoughts, he should have fired McCagnan after the season. Uh, you know, when he could have let, uh, why let him pick the coach? Why let him spend the money? Why let him run the draft? It's not like Mike did a great job as the GM. He was mediocre at best. Obviously, a 14 and 34 record over the last three seasons is not something you can stand on when it comes to job security. So he should have fired him after the season if he had doubts. Uh, if you want to give Christopher the benefit of the doubt and say that he had no idea that McCagnan and Gase would blow up like this. Okay, we'll give him a little benefit of the doubt, but but why wait until three weeks after the draft? That was the puzzling part. I talked to a GM on Monday, and he said, Rich, he goes, I talked to a lot of people around the league. They are totally bewildered as to why the Jets needed three weeks to do this. Two years ago, the Bills made a similar move. They whacked their GM, but they did it as soon as the draft ended. Literally, that day on Saturday, they issued a statement saying Doug Whaley was out as the general manager. Can't understand why the Jets uh, took so long. Uh, my fourth takeaway, um, you know, I don't – on paper, Gase didn't pull a power play because technically he's not winding up with additional power because they're still going to hire a general manager – but you have to be naive not to think that he wasn't motivated by the idea of handpicking a general manager, which really tacitly is giving him more power. So that's let's clarify that right away. Now, the question is, did Gase do it because he's power hungry or did he do it because he thinks Mike McCagnan is a buffoon and he didn't want his second and possibly last shot as a coach to be associated with what he perceived to be an, a, an incompetent general manager. I think there's probably some truth to that, but I think, you know, ultimately Gase did it because he knew he wasn't going to win with McCagnan and he wanted to get in his own guy. The bottom line is this. It's an ugly mess and it's incumbent upon Christopher Johnson to unify a divided organization, and restore credibility to this franchise. And that's going to be challenging because, for better or worse, he's riding with Adam Gase. And we know Gase doesn't have the most reputable track record as a coach or a personnel guy, but he's riding with Gase. And now Johnson has to find a qualified football man, not a yes man, a qualified football man who's compatible with Adam Gase. Good luck. That's the end of the first quarter. This is the second quarter. We call this the Green Room, where we invite a special guest into the Green Room every week. And this week is a dear friend of mine, 
the uh, incomparable John Clayton. Uh, you can see his work in the Washington Post. He also uh, is on the air at 710 ESPN in his hometown of Seattle, former longtime ESPN analyst and a member of the Pro Football Writers Wing in the Hall of Fame in Canton. He was elected in 2007. Welcome to the program, John Clayton. Rich, it's good to be in the green room. Now, is it green because of the Jets? Yeah, we have a, as you can tell, uh, we have a Jet theme here. The podcast is called Flight Deck, and we're in the green room. So you could probably connect the dots there a little bit so we're uh, we're all we're all jets and uh you know this jets team always keeps us on our toes they're always interesting you've seen everything in your decades of covering the nfl i'm wondering john what was your initial reaction when you heard last week that mike mccagnan was fired <laughs> well and you know and the bad part is you know everybody including the two of us heard those rumors like about two weeks before and we were hearing the word, okay, Joe Douglas may be the one coming in, which put some possible validity to the possibility. But I thought we thought we both dismissed the idea that they would make that firing, having given Mike the power to hire the coach, giving Mike the power to go ahead and have the draft, spend more than anybody else in free agency. You figured, okay, they're just going to stand by him. But sure enough, after a few days, it was gone. And so I was a little surprised how that went, but I think we're not surprised that it happened only because we had heard it for a couple of weeks. Yeah, there were definite rumblings, and I know we talked about it on the phone, and you know, you've been reading and, and hearing some of these rumblings that were going on, and what does it tell you, as a, as a veteran observer of the NFL, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen situations like this before, we saw the Bills a couple of years ago do it right after the giraffe fired their GM, what does it tell you about the Jets that they're going through something like this? I mean, it certainly is inconsistency coming from ownership because, again, not to be too critical of Christopher Johnson. I mean, he's only been taken over for a couple of years now trying to run the team, and you can see he's trying to figure out the right ways to do it. But things like this happen so many times with the Cleveland Browns. I mean, Jim Haslam kept on going through coach after coach after coach, strategy after strategy after strategy, where you know you, you want to find the situation where you find football people to make the football decisions. But I, you would take it this year because Christopher wanted to get more involved because of some of the problems that happened with Todd Bowles and Mike McCagnan that uh, you know maybe he got too involved in this. And I'm sure it's going to be a learning lesson for him. But uh, you, know, you, need, you need to have consistency from ownership to make sure that things are going to work. And right now, I don't think it's happened so far this year. Too, there's too many things going on. Right. I, I agree. And you mentioned the Browns. It's a good example. They've always been like the uh, poster boys for dysfunction. But yet now they seem to be on the right path. You know, a lot of people think they're going to make the playoffs this year. What was the key for them to turn it around? And how might the Jets learn from that? Well, I mean, I think the key is to find the right experienced football person that has a, a good resume. And that was John Dorsey. You know, John Dorsey came from the Ron Wolf School in Green Bay. I mean, he was successful just about every stop that he made, particularly in the Kansas City Chiefs. Look how he built up that roster and, you know, was involved in getting the trade to got on Patrick Mahomes. I mean, he's a good football mind, and so you, you do it that way. When you look at what Jim Haslam did, it seems like, you know, he would hear from different people, different people suggesting to him to do this. I still remember that I think it was going to be Ron Wolf that was going to go in there and be a consultant for him. And uh, then he listened to what Jim Haslam was saying, and then he came back and says, I think I'm not going to do this. And that's when they went to Sashi Brown and went the analytics route. And you saw how disastrous that was, because I still remember going to their training camp, and they had 14 draft choices in Sashi's first draft. And I'm on the field with everybody. I'm looking, and I'm saying, 
there may only be three players that are good enough to play in this league. And sure enough, I mean, you can look at the list right now. You know, there may have been three or four, but there was not many more than that. You know, most of the guys have all moved on. Some are out. Some don't even have careers. So that's where, you know, you've got to stay away from that. You've got to try to build something up. Because, again, and this is not just Christopher Johnson, but, you know, too many owners make too many changes. I mean, when you have seven and eight changes a year, you know, schemes change. So now the personnel you get a couple years ago. And I think what even owners aren't realizing now, it's the short-term nature of what it takes to be able to get talent. Because, you know, if you have a guy, I mean, you're not going to have pretty much most of your first-round draft choices more than six years. And a lot of times you only have them four. And if you're turning around in that cycle and firing coaches after one, two, or three years, it's not going to work. Yeah, we've seen the Jets try this arranged marriage thing before, and it's failed uh, with Rex Ryan and John Itzig, and then they did uh, McCagnan and Bowles. That didn't work out. It, it produced a, a like a 14-34 and 34 record over the last three years. And you're in Seattle, and you're very close to the Seahawks facility, and you've seen a, a situation where, where Pete Carroll and John Schneider – you were basically hired at the same time. I believe it was 2010, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, they, I don't think they had a real background together, but yet it clicks there. You know, they have a championship. They're always contending. They just rebuilt their team on the fly. Why does it work so well for them? Well, it works because the personalities and the work style mesh. I mean, here you have Pete Carroll, who is, uh, you know, he basically kind of reinvented himself when he went to USC after he was with you at the Jets and at the, right. at the Patriots. And so what he did is that uh, he learned so much through the years. And so when he went to USC, he says, I'm going to do it my way. You know, I'm the coach. I'm picking the players. I'm doing that. And everything that he had learned through the years worked. And so USC became one of the best programs in the country. So now uh, Paul Allen hires him. He comes up here, and, uh, you know, Steve Kime was in the mix as one of the general manager candidates. John Snyder was young. It seemed like they worked. But where it works so well is Pete is very defined in what he wants, long, angular cornerbacks. You know, he wants, you know, kind of taller, quick-twitch type defensive ends, and he wants to be able to run the ball. Well, John Snyder, who's been through so many different systems, uh, has been able to, and again, him, him, him being a run wolf disciple, he just gets the players that fit, and he's very creative in being able to do it. And they work so well together, that's why now they're starting to be on the upswing and maybe trying to see if they can put together in the next two, three years their next Super Bowl team. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, you know, the Patriots do the same thing because they know exactly the type of player they have to plug into their system. So there's no guessing. The scouts know what the personnel department is thinking. The personnel department knows what the coach is thinking. And the Jets haven't had that because they've they had so little continuity over the years that coaches, are, you know, they want certain type of players, but then the GM gets fired and they have to bring in different type of player. It's just you can't win like that. You know, you're always changing. Well, I'll tell you the other thing. And I was just thinking about this before uh, you know coming on with you. Is that uh, if you think now, sometimes early success can be the the worst enemy of a coach and a general manager. So here's McCagnan, here's Todd Bowles. You know they have the playoff season in uh, 2015, and of course, you know what they uh, Mike has only one player left from that draft. Uh, but that was a bad draft. I mean, league-wide, there's only 46 players that were still with the team that drafted them that year. It was one of the worst drafts that you can remember. Okay, so you take that. But then they won 10 games. Then they are, Now they're drafting uh, lower, and the chances of getting Pro Bowl players from 21 to 32 are tough. And so Aaron Lee ends up going to uh, the Kansas City Chiefs for a sixth-round pick in 2020. And so now it keeps regressing. 
And now you have to keep spending in free agency. That uh, eats up cap room. That creates problems because in most cases, free agents that are paid high only stay there two, three years at the most. Right. So uh, you know the, the success almost worked against this team, and then bad choices worked against this team. You talk to a lot of people around the league, John. What's the reputation of Adam Gase? Uh, I mean, brilliant offensive mind. Uh, comes from the Mike Mart School of Coaching. Uh, he's, and I think the one criticism is this, maybe down in Miami and possibly with the Chets, getting too involved in personnel. You know, because you think about uh, what's happened over the last couple of years. You know, here they he trade they traded away Jarvis Landry. Uh, they you know shipped away uh, Mike Pouncey, who didn't resign him, and so all of a sudden. You know, you're getting all rid of all these Pro Bowl guys, and maybe they just didn't mesh in the locker room or whatever reason it was. But you know, now they're down to only three players that have been uh, to the Pro Bowl. That's it, just three. You know, Cameron Wake's no longer there. Of course, that was after Adam got fired. But uh, you know, you can't strip the team down too much. You're trying to build up talent, and you know, if Jay Ajayi doesn't seem to mesh well in the locker room, do you really trade him or you try to work through it? And it seemed like uh, you know, Adam was able to get involved enough to say, okay, this guy goes, we want him out of here. And uh, the talent base got worse. And, you know, it didn't help Ryan Tannehill because uh, he's working with less talent, uh, even though, again, Adam's a brilliant coach. And, again, he brings – he's still – he carries that Mike Martz type uh, offense and a lot of creative things, and he gets along well with quarterbacks. Yeah, I think you make a good point because uh, he's like he can cook the meal, but you're saying he's not less necessarily the guy who should be shopping for the groceries is what you're saying, basically. The old uh, what, what I'm uh, saying is, unless you're Bill Belichick, uh, it's better to hire a chef or work with a chef than be the chef. Yeah, of course, we're playing on the famous Bill Parcells line from probably 20 years ago when he left the Patriots with the groceries and cooking the meal. And you know, I agree with you. I mean, for a coach who's 23 and 25, a career record. I think he should just stick to coaching and not get in personnel. But so how did so you're the Jets? You're looking for a GM. How do they, how are they going to fix this now? What kind of fit do they need? What kind of person? We've heard about Joe Douglas in Philadelphia. How can they solve the mess that they're in right now? Well, I think what it comes down to because I don't know how strained the relationship was with Mike McCagnan and Todd Bowles, but you could see as time was going on, they didn't agree on talent, and that became a problem. You can see it very pronounced with the McCagnan uh, Gaze thing. I, I think the better thing to do is hire the best guy who can work with Adam Gaze, and that's why I would have to think Joe Douglas has to be one of the main choices, if not the main choice. He's got a good football background. Uh, you know, he's obviously, uh, he knows Adam very well. And so what you want is that team. And, of course, if he can team up, now the question is going to be who has final decision and is Adam going to accept or promote the idea that maybe Douglas has the final call in the 53? Because I think you have to have that protection. But I think the key right now, particularly knowing that they have the quarterback, that's yeah. the key. In Sam Darnold, it's like, okay, uh, how do you get the parts around him better and defensive better and try to go? And so I, I would have to think that the, you know a Joe Douglas hike higher would be pretty good. And uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts. We've we've written a lot about this here in New York. Uh, just the Adam Gase uh, Greg Williams pairing. Uh, I know you know Greg. You know he's been around the league forever. Uh, how do you think that's going to work out? <laughs> it could be turbulent. I mean, I think safe to say. But I mean, the one thing you know is how good of a coach uh, Greg Williams is, and I think you particularly saw that last year with how well he handled everything with the Cleveland Browns. So as long as Adam just lets Greg be Greg, 
then I think that uh, that that should be fine because you know he's going to push the players as best he can. I think you know he's going to put good schemes together. They're going to be blitzing like crazy. But the one thing I just still wish, because I wish it happened with Todd Bowles, and I'm hoping it happens with Greg Williams, will you just get into a 4-3? Because I know just for years, particularly you know until Mike McCagnan trying to get better athletic linebackers, this team should have been in a 4-3 because they had better defensive linemen than they did linebackers. <clears throat> and now... I still think, you know, particularly with Quentin Williams being drafted, you know, isn't it better to go to a four-three than a three-four? But hey, that's up to Greg Williams and that's up to ownership. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, when you play a three-four, I mean, the Jets are acting like they have LT and Carl Banks as their outside linebackers. When you play a three-four, they don't have those guys, and yet they seem to—they're saying publicly that they're going to be a three-four base. Although I'm really curious to see how that works. I—I I have a feeling once the season starts. You might start seeing some more four three, and of course teams are in sub packages so much nowadays that uh, really you're only in your base probably what twenty five to thirty percent of the time. Um, but John, I really appreciate it. I, I cannot let you go. I have to change the subject on one thing for those fans who have not seen it. You got uh, John has one of the all time great ESPN commercials back in the day. It was several years ago. I have to ask you about it, John, because I'm so curious. And if you haven't seen it, just go on YouTube and check it out. It's the great when John is playing a metalhead on a ESPN advertisement and he's got a ponytail in his basement and doing TV segments and eating Chinese food on his bed. It is the best commercial. John, what year was that? And just give us a little how many times does someone come up to you and bring up that commercial? Well, it's constant because, I mean, I'll be walking uh, through an airport, uh, walking through a store, heading to a restaurant, and they say, uh, so uh, where's your ponytail? And I always have to say, oh, it's just tucked in. You can you <laughs> don't see it. It's right there. Obviously, it's not. But the, the, the genesis of that was that apparently the ad agency, which is you know so good in putting together the ESPN commercials uh, and the, the, the best ones, had this idea for a couple years. And they were trying to push it, and it wasn't being received as quickly as you would think. But Jerry Madelon, who you know I used to work with in the 6 o'clock sports center, mm-hmm. and he was the one in charge of all the commercials, uh, got this script, and he just he just went on the floor. He, he thought this was sensational. And then a lot of the other people around Bristol were trying to get into that script. But the uh, ad agency said, no, this one is for Clayton and Clayton alone. And so Jerry sent it to me, uh, and, I, and they said, do you, do you have any problem with this? I said, no. <laughs> this looks great. <laughs> and so we went down to L.A., and, you know, there was like 65 people involved in this, including wow. two hairdressers for a guy that doesn't have much hair. So it's like, okay, that's a good sign. So now we, we, uh, did, we do 22 takes. And I know that the director thought this was going to be the best commercial that they've put, ever put together on for ESPN. Because basically it was kind of showing you, it's like, okay, now we have, you know, people that are, uh, at home and they have, uh, their, the studio and, and their house. And so it's like, okay, and you don't have to get fully dressed. I mean, you just go out there and just, uh, you know, in shorts or whatever, and uh, just make sure the tie's great and you get the little uh, rouge on, you're all set. And so we do the commercial, and the, by 10, we're in great shapes. So really for the last 12 takes, you know, I was actually jumping higher than I've ever jumped, which is, of course, unusual for me. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it, it can, just going into the bed, and uh, we just did outtakes, which, of course, you can find those outtakes on YouTube. And so uh, it was it was just uh, so much fun. So what they did, thinking this was going to be the best one they've ever made, they scheduled an August uh, poll 
But what you would do is you vote for the best commercials of all time. Well, me being the idiot that I am, yeah, I got like 1.4 million followers on Twitter, 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 and I didn't tweet it out. Oh. Well, Jay Z, who represents Robinson Cano, tweeted out on his three million at that time, and so I ended up finishing second. But boy, I'll take second with that commercial. Well, if people are listening who haven't seen it, please, please do yourself a favor. Google it. Go on YouTube. Check out John in the commercial. He's awesome. And not only does he do great commercials, he knows the football, uh, the NFL like no one else. And I really appreciate you coming on, John. Great insight on the Jets. And uh, read his work in the Washington Post. And he's the best. I really appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. Rich, thanks. And welcome to the third quarter. This is The Blind Side, where the listeners write in their Twitter questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. But let me say this first. Just from reading the tone over the last couple of days and the aftermath of this McCagnin bombshell, just a quick takeaway on some of the uh, the, the, the tone of the, of the fans. I think the organizations, they have some real credibility concerns about the organization. From their perspective, I think the credibility of the Jets is shot after this. And yet there were a lot of fans who really are like, who cares about power struggles and things like that? They just want to win football games and do whatever it takes to win football games. So I think they, it sounds like some fans are just getting tired of this, you know, this so-called palace coup. But anyway, let's get into some of the questions. Our first question, and these are good ones this week, not all of them about the McCagnin stuff, but most of them. Uh, at Don W452, his question is, with all the front office drama, will it have an adverse effect on the players, especially Sam Darnold? I can tell you this. Uh, when this happened, I was texting one of the players on the Jets, and I said, are you shocked by this? And he, and he said, LOL. He goes, it's the NFL. Nothing shocks me. So I think that might give you some insight into how players are looking at this in the locker room. They did not have a daily contact with Mike McCagnin. It's not like he was walking through the locker room buddy-buddy with the players. He was in his second-floor office at One Jets Drive. Really not much interaction with players. You know, I think it could affect the players if they perceive Gase to be a phony and a backstabber. But I think players don't pay attention to press conferences and hearsay. I think, I think they go by what they see and what they hear from their coach. And so I think they'll be looking, you know, studying Gase, but I don't necessarily think it'll have an adverse effect. He has a really good relationship with Sam Darnold. And I can tell you this, and no one can argue with this. The one thing McCagnin and Gase did agree on is that they believe Sam Darnold will be a very good quarterback. So let's, for Jets' sake... Let's hope they can uh, not mess up Sam and he can fulfill his potential. Second question from at YLowey530. Who, in your opinion, will be the best hire for the Jets at general manager? And do you think that GM will really have control of the roster over Gase? Yes, the Jets are saying, and by the Jets I mean Christopher Johnson, he is saying that the new general manager will have control of the roster and will have the final say on personnel, just as Mike McCagnin did, and he will report directly to Johnson, and the, the coach will report directly to Johnson. In other words, the structure is not changing. I have my issues with this structure. We've talked about this in the past. I've been writing about it for years. But nevertheless, this is the structure they're going to go forward with. I think they need to hire someone 
who is familiar with Adam, who can get along with Adam. And, uh, you know, Joe Douglas is the name you hear. And I'm not saying that's because people are tweeting about it from talking to people in the NFL. They all seem to feel like Joe Douglas can have the job if he wants it. Uh, he has not interviewed yet. When he does, we'll see if they're compatible. And I would not be shocked if he's the next GM. Uh, question number three at G Tucker 1115. Uh, with a new GM being on the same page as Gase, what happens next year when Gase wears out his new buddy? Could you see the GM making a case to uh, Christopher Johnson to fire the head coach? So you're saying, G. Tucker, that the Jets would do something crazy and fire a coach after one year? Uh, look, I've been covering this team for 30 years. Anything is possible. They've fired coaches after one year in the past. Heck, they lost coaches who didn't even get a chance to coach, and that's Bill Belichick back in 2000. So nothing would ever surprise me. We've seen crazy stuff happen. They fired their GM several years ago after two years. I'm talking about John Itzik. So it's the Jets. Never say never. Fourth question from at backward. Will Gase fire Greg Williams before the start of the season? Uh, look, you know, you're talking about a combustible pair of personalities there, but I do think Adam has a, a respect for Greg's acumen as a defensive coach. I think he'll bring a lot of fire to the defense. I think that fire will sometimes clash with Gase's fire on offense. I don't think there's any question about that. But, you know, a little friction, a little competitive back and forth is okay if it can be productive. Uh, you know, I don't think Greg Williams was Adams' first choice as defensive coordinator. Let me put that out there. I think the front office, i.e. McCagnan, really wanted Greg Williams to be the guy. And Gase, of course, had to sign up for it before he accepted the job, but he did. And uh, so it'll be interesting to watch. But no, I don't think Greg would be fired before the start of the season. And our last question, this is more of a football question. It comes from our one of our loyal followers at Southern Jet NC and he says aggressive defensive coordinators many times try to impress upon the offense to slow down the game to give their defense time to rest you know not a lot of three and outs Gase is an innovative offensive coach who has Le'Veon Bell now do you think he will tailor his offense uh, with his defense in mind at all and that's a great question um, because you have to be mindful of that. You just can't have an offensive coach and a defensive coach. They have to be on the same page. And I think Adam will call the game with Greg in mind. Uh, I think a good example of that happened in Miami a few years ago when the Dolphins were good that one year. They were riding Jay Ajayi as the running back. He had a career year, and the Dolphins really shifted into more of a power-running team. Now you have Le'Veon Bell. And I think Gase will ride Bell. You have a one of the best players at his position in the league. Give him the rock. Let him do what he does. That'll make it easier for Darnold. It'll keep the defense fresh and off the field. That is the way to play it. If he starts throwing the ball on every down, you could have a Greg Williams might go Buddy Ryan on Adam Gase. We all know what happened in that back in 1993. Buddy Ryan popped his offensive coordinator, Kelvin Gilbride, on the sideline. Uh, but Gase is, I think he's a smart X's and O's coach. I don't think he will do that. I think he will protect his defense. Thanks for the questions. That is the end of the third quarter.
And welcome to the fourth quarter. This is the Red Zone. This is where I take you behind the scenes of life on the Jets beat. And life on the Jets beat has been real interesting for the last week or so with the big, big announcement that the Jets basically uh, shook up their front front office. And I've been getting questions like, Rich, you know, has this, this is crazy. It's never happened before. It's unprecedented. And actually that is not true. Uh, I've been covering the Jets for a long time. I've seen a lot of dysfunction in my years on this beat. And you only have to go back as far as 2014 where we saw a really, really bad situation just deteriorate with Rex Ryan as the coach and John Itzik as the GM. It was one of those arranged marriages. That never seemed to work. They were total opposites in personality and philosophy. They actually had a decent year together in 2013, and then it just blew up. And the entire year was just—I uh, don't know if you even want to call it a power struggle. It was—it was really Rex knowing he was going to get fired at the end of the year. He was going down, and he wanted to take John Itzik with him. And I think he very cleverly used the media to get his word out there and it just created such a toxic environment just on a daily basis people in the building told me it was just so hard the working atmosphere and uh it just made for a really really bad situation and it finally came to an end they and they ended up both going down they were both fired the same day to to shut no one shock rex he has nine lives, and he rebounded and parlayed that into a huge deal with the Buffalo Bills. He got over $20 million guaranteed, still making money off the Bills. John Itzik wasn't as lucky. He eventually landed a behind-the-scenes job you know, with the Jacksonville Jaguars, where basically he works in a dark room is what it comes down to. He does get out and do some scouting, and I've actually talked to John on several occasions. I bumped into him at college games where he scouted and some NFL games. And a pleasant guy. I, I really didn't even know him when he's the, with the GM as the GM because he didn't want to be known. And but pleasant, you know, he won't talk on the record. I've asked him several times to go on the record. He wants to take the high road. I could just tell from talking to him though that he was just not happy about way things went down with the Jets. That was really, really probably the most toxic situation I've ever been around. Even more so than this Gase McCagden thing. And you know what? I think. Christopher Johnson, even though he wasn't in charge in 2014, he saw what that did to the team and the organization. And I think that's one of the reasons why he took a proactive approach here with Gason McCagden. He didn't want to go through an entire year of that type of atmosphere. And so in that sense, good for him. Uh, one last parting note on Mike McCagden. And, you know, we get so caught up in, you know, the bottom line and wins and losses. And occasionally we forget about the human element that goes into it. And I just want to share a story about Mike. You may not care, but I thought it was kind of cool. So about a year ago, he spoke to my sports journalism class at Syracuse University. Um, he volunteered to do it. I did not ask him to do it. We got into a discussion one day on journalism and the sports landscape. And I mentioned to him that how I, I always take these ideas and bring it to my students at Syracuse. And he said, you know, I grew up in, in the education field. My father was an educator. He goes, I'd love to talk to your class one day. And I was like, yeah, great. We'll have you come on up. 
So he drove up after the uh, 2018 draft. It was about a week after the draft. And I still think he was on his Sam Darnold high. I think he was on an adrenaline rush. And so he drove up. It took him about four hours to get up to Syracuse. He shows up a little late. We're in the middle of the class. I didn't tell the class. He walks in. This They knew who he was because these kids, they were sports fans, and they saw him, and he shows up with about an hour left in the class. He talked about his job and what he does and the draft and McC- and Darnold and the sports media relationship with uh, franchises, and they were spellbound. And Mike, to his credit, he stayed extra. And when I say extra, he stayed until 10 o'clock, two hours past the end of my class, and spoke to the class for a total of three hours. It was above and beyond. And they were, like they said, they were mesmerized. They followed him out into the parking lot afterwards. We are walking across campus. They were still asking him questions. And he was good enough to answer all their questions. He was not paid for that. He declined. He could have stayed overnight at the hotel on campus. He didn't want to stay overnight. And he just hopped back into his car. He grabbed this Starbucks coffee, as he always does, and got back on the road and drove four hours back to New Jersey. So... I thought it was kind of a cool thing, and I've never mentioned it before until a notes column the other day. Never spoke of it. It was just I told the kids, let's keep this quiet, and uh, never reported it. But I just wanted you to know that because sometimes we get caught up in power struggles and wins, losses, and who's doing what and who's coming in and who's going. But sometimes you forget that people are people, and this is a human business, a people business, and uh, Mike McCagden did a solid there for 18 Syracuse University students who were uh, blown away by his surprise appearance and uh, really appreciated that time he spent with them. And that is the end of another episode of The Flight Deck. I'd like to thank our special guest, the professor, John Clayton, for stopping by. Thanks again to our producer, Jeff Scopin. Just to remind you again, this is going to be on Apple Podcasts, so check that out. And anywhere you get your podcast, you'll find us. Finally, the Flight Deck also um, will be making our way onto Google Play and, of course, the ESPN uh, website, ESPN.com, and the ESPN app. The Flight Deck, you'll see it. Check us out. we got some good stuff on the Jets, and we will continue through this, what promises to be an eventful offseason. OTAs are beginning this week. We'll be back next week to talk about OTAs, Gase McCagnan, and all the interesting stuff happening around this very, very compelling team. And remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.